Marvel Shaw, the leader of the Women's Auxiliary, wrote of the fateful event that occurred on July 20th, day four of the third strike. Quote, Bloody Friday. As those of us who lived through that awful day when death rode into the strike headquarters know it, began as a murky, cloudy day. The very air seemed charged with foreboding. The usual rush of business for the auxiliary came with daylight. The kitchens opened as usual. There was a regular amount of relief work. The organizer went to press. Pickets came and went on their assignments. Yet, everything was different. Perhaps the fact that the men were gradually being weeded out of headquarters and sent down to the market area helped create this atmosphere. When the doors of the commissary were opened for the noon meal and only a few men appeared, we were beginning to wonder. Mrs. Carl, who chaired the commissary committee, expressed herself about this, saying, There must be something unusual going on, Mrs. Dobbs. Kelly Postal hasn't sent me a single cruiser car special this morning. Bill Gray says that hardly any of the night crews have come in. I'm keeping food ready, however. I expect an awful rush when they do come in. There wasn't much food used that day. After the noon hour, headquarters was strangely empty. It was so quiet that it was almost eerie. Even the ringing of the telephone was a welcome diversion. And then, all too suddenly, the emptiness gave way to overcrowding. The stillness gave way to the awful siren of the ambulance. And the spotless white of the hospital quarters gave way to appalling red, blood red. When the first man was carried in by the returning pickets, foaming at the mouth, gray as cement, unconscious, someone screamed. In less time than it can be told, 47 men lay on improvised cots, their bodies riddled with bullet wounds. Action! Water, alcohol, cotton, men and women bathing, horrid blue welts from which blood oozed. Cutting away clothing, lighting cigarettes for the men who lay there, gripping their hands, biting their lips, just to keep them from screaming. One of them was a red-haired boy, a messenger boy, who had been a bystander. His hand shook as he accepted his cigarette. He smiled, whispered a weak, thanks, lady, as he fainted. Another was Henry Ness. His shirt had been cut away, exposing his back, completely covered with blue welts. He raised himself in his delirium, fighting away the doctor who was trying to help him. He collapsed. And then the scream of the ambulances, Clear the way. Stand back. Let the cars into the garage. Nothing else enters. One by one, they back in, and when they come out, they are loaded with the cargo of suffering humanity. Ness and Ballor in the first one, Shugrin, unconscious, was lifted up. Swiftly, he was carried to the ambulance. Harry DeBoer, lying on a cot, angrily he ordered the attendants to take care of some of those other guys first. Harry had a slug in his leg, embedded in the bone just above the knee. Now, the ambulances were being filled to their doors with all the men who were able to stand. Full to the brim, they back out, one by one, until 47 men are on their way to beds of pain and some to oblivion. This is 1934, Mill City Revolt. Go general strike, grip the city in a death-like clutch. While an auto accessory worker strike in Toledo, State Guardsmen had to resort to tear gas, lead, and cold steel to curb the temper of the strikers. In Minneapolis, a truck driver strike was climaxed by severe riots and fights between the strikers and the police with many casualties. Warfare in the streets, civic strife at its worst.
The day this podcast releases marks the 85th anniversary of Bloody Friday, a violent event that shaped the course of Minneapolis and U.S. history for decades to come. But to understand why this murderous episode happened, we have to understand the three days of striking before it, and if this is your first time listening, the complex path we have traveled so far. Bloody Friday occurred on the fourth day of the third trucker strike in Minneapolis in 1934. Quite simply, the Citizens Alliance had had enough. What was once a moribund and impotent local of 100 to 200 truck drivers, now a mere year later, controlled the streets of Minneapolis almost at will, with thousands of loyal, courageous, and militant members. The city's bosses, gathered in a united front called the Citizens Alliance, was seething at their loss of control. Since 1902, the Citizens Alliance had broken every single strike. Truckers, upholstery workers, railway men, streetcar workers, the painters' union, what have you. On the eve of the strike, Local 574 described its nemesis, the Citizens Alliance, as, quote, the boss union, the boss united front, hateful to us, hateful even to many of its own members, We fight for the 95%, while the Citizens Alliance fights for the 5%. But in the midst of the Great Depression, a surge of workers' revolt had swept the country. Everyone was quite aware of this situation. Panicked newspaper headlines worried over not only Minneapolis, but Toledo and San Francisco. I have not been able to integrate these two monumental strikes into my narrative, but hopefully you have noticed the introductory announcer nervously describing San Francisco as in a death-like clutch and Toledo strikers engaging in combat with 10,000 National Guardsmen. But, like an animal, the Citizens' Alliance had been backed into a corner, and they became dangerous. In February, the Citizens' Alliance, as well as everyone else, even the strikers themselves, was caught completely by surprise. A several-day strike in the city's coal yards, led by this union, Local 574, had shut down Minneapolis coal deliveries at one of the coldest times of the year. Their small but game-changing strike, address rehearsal, reshaped capital labor relations in the city. As FDR's New Deal failed to change the hardships faced by Minneapolis workers, broader sections of truckers were moving into strike action. San Francisco, Toledo, and Minneapolis had introduced an important element as well. Many of the leaders were socialists. Those leading the struggle in Minneapolis were Marxists, Trotskyists. The employers exaggeratively warned the public that what was happening was not a mere labor strike, but, quote, really a communist revolution. But what these Marxists brought to the table was battle-hardened leadership, well-respected by the truckers after years of organizing. Far from substituting themselves for their fellow workers, the Dunn brothers, Ray, Miles, and Grant, along with Carl Skoglund, trained a new layer of militant workers, among them Farrell Dobbs, Harry DeBoer, Jack Maloney, and Kelly Postal. The Marxist analysis of the situation, and of capitalism as a whole, was essential. They knew that society was fundamentally divided between the bosses and the workers, the haves and the have-nots, oppressor and oppressed. They knew that, as sympathetic any politician might be, their ultimate role was to enforce the status quo, law and order, and capitalism itself. They knew that the working class bore massive but untapped power to change society for the better. They also knew that the cops were not on their side. 
but workers are not necessarily convinced by the logic of school books and debate, but by the logic of events. The second strike in May culminated in the Battle of Deputies Run, in which over two days, workers duped it out in the streets with businessmen aided by the police. The Citizens Alliance's humiliating defeat, caught on camera for the rest of the country to see, would warrant payback. The two deputies who died, one of them a prominent businessman, had portraits hung on the wall of Citizens Alliance offices. As the third strike began, every force involved was far more prepared. The fate of the city's labor movement depended upon the outcome that emerged from the clash of forces. Workers, socialists, union bureaucrats, employers, the city and police officials, the public, the governor, the media, federal mediators, and even the president. Local 574 converted its recently begun newspaper, The Organizer, into a daily strike bulletin. They declared, quote, Ours is the cause of the whole labor movement. Should we be defeated, we who are entrenched in the key industry of transportation, the other unions in Minneapolis would be chopped down one by one. Every labor organization would be endangered. Should we be victorious, it means a strengthening of the whole labor movement. It means a tremendous step forward in making Minneapolis a union town. End quote. The strike began in earnest on Tuesday, July 17th. Local 574 quickly shut down the city's trucking operations using the now infamous cruising pickets. Suggested in February by Harry DeBoer, the nature of the industry they struck against required its own form of strike. Rather than a factory or a mill, a static location housing hundreds or thousands of workers, trucks could be located anywhere in the city. Therefore, to block the movement of company trucks, Strikers patrolled the city in their own trucks, frequently with a half-dozen strikers in the truck bed. When a scab was located, the driver would block its path or even ram it. In February, this ended with coal dumped in the middle of the street for anyone to take. Now, what happened afterward depended on the situation, considering what product was stopped could be absolutely anything. A network of informants, strikers, sympathizers, and motorcycle couriers phoned in to strike headquarters regularly whenever truck movement was spotted. The man, now responsible for dispatch, was Kelly Postal, advised by Ray Dunn and Farrell Dobbs. Cars waited for orders in the strike headquarters, and when Postal gave them the destination through code, strikers hopped in the back and another set of pickets took to the streets. No employer dared to challenge them on the first day. Crucially, there were exceptions. As before, Local 574 did not interfere really with deliveries to hospitals, orphanages, and to those on public relief. Trucking firms that were unionized and other Teamster locals, such as those delivering milk, ice, and coal, were also allowed. They did need permits from the local, though. Permits were administered by Ray Rainbolt, one of the several Native American truckers involved in the strike. Dobbs described Rainbolt as an ideal person for the assignment, capable of fairness toward the deserving but deaf to the wheedling of petty chiselers. In one interesting twist, International Harvester, then the major manufacturer of agricultural equipment, sought a permit to drive some trucks to the Chicago World's Fair. Rainbolt and Local 574 allowed it on two conditions. They had to donate to the Union Strike Cafeteria, and they had to prominently display a banner stating, moved with Local 574's permission, for both its drive and during the exhibition. An important early decision 
had been made at 12.30 in the morning as the newly elected strike committee first convened. Chaired by Kelly Postal, a rank-and-filer who had emerged as a leader over the course of the year, the meeting deliberated a proposal regarding so-called picketing equipment. Really, should the strikers carry clubs and pipes with them? In a way, the question was, should the strikers begin the process of shutting down trucks anew, or continue where they left off, two months before, armed with clubs? The committee determined it would be a mistake to instigate the cops immediately and lose the tactical and rhetorical advantage of acting in defense. Instead, all so-called picket equipment was to be stored in the headquarters. On the first day, some skirmishes between strikers and police occurred. The organizer described one instance in which two strikers, intercepted by the police, told the cops to screw off. For that, they were arrested, charged with disorderly conduct, and released on $25 bail. Their names were Barney Barnhart and Henry Ness. Governor Olson, to no one's delight, called in a battalion of the National Guard. This was at the request of Sheriff Wall and Mayor Bainbridge. Rather than waiting for the violence to break out, as he had done in May before the Union forced him down, he stationed the 151st Field Artillery Battalion to the Minneapolis Armory, located in downtown. He declared that, quote, I will not take sides. I will enforce law and order if necessary. I feel the strike could have been prevented, end quote. Instead, he said the National Guard was to create and maintain order, preserve the general welfare, protect property, and bring about a restoration of peace and law and order. But the Union retorted through the organizer. To their members, strike leaders declared that the calling of the National Guard's sole purpose was to intimidate and coerce the Union. It was the employers and their scabs who provoked violence and disturbed the peace. Olson may have said that the main question was law and order, but to them the real question was, quote, Has the underdog, the worker, the exploited and persecuted, the right to organize into unions and to demand a decent living? End quote. The union emphatically demanded, withdraw the National Guard immediately. No truck is going to be moved by nobody. Olson did not listen. On the other hand, the Citizens Alliance was not enthused either. They dared not raise another private army after the Battle of Deputies Run, but they did not trust the National Guard. This was mostly due to their distrust of the farmer labor governor who commanded them. As much as Local 574 denounced Olson in public, the Citizens Alliance considered him among their enemies. Who the Citizens Alliance did trust, however, was the Minneapolis Chief of Police, Mike Johannes. In the run-up to the strike, he had requested a doubling of the police budget to hire 400 more cops, who he would train just like an army to handle riots, in his words. They were armed to the teeth with shotguns and submachine guns. The alliance between bosses and cops almost bore fruit on Thursday, July 19th, day three of the strike. Johannes was quoted in the Minneapolis Tribune as stating that, quote, We're going to start moving goods. Don't take a beating. You have shotguns and you know how to use them. When we are finished with this convoy, there will be other goods to move, end quote. The cops and bosses were setting a trap with a Jordan Stevens company, a wholesale grocer, but an inside worker tipped the union off on the plot. On that afternoon, 150 cops guarded a five-ton truck in which scab workers loaded a half-dozen boxes weighing a measly 150 pounds. The truck displayed a large banner, hospital supplies. 
Now, if you recall what I said just a few minutes ago, you'll remember, as all the strikers knew, the union allowed and had allowed deliveries to hospitals as long as they had a permit. This plot didn't fool anybody. Grant Dunn was dispatched to the scene and phoned Johannes to inform him that the plan was doomed to fail. Johannes sent a messenger to call the plan off, but the truck delivered the goods before one could arrive. When Grant Dunn approached the guarding cops to let them know it wasn't worth following through, the cops stuck a shotgun in Grant's ribs and shouted, I don't give a goddamn what you want. Get back in the car. But the bosses did hope to fool a misinformed public. The media were in on the plot as well. Photographers had been notified beforehand, and reporters showed up with special newspaper editions announcing a successful delivery, a delivery that had not yet happened. And even when it did, it signified nothing at all. The boss's goal of breaking striker morale, angering the public, and provoking the union totally failed. The organizer boasted, quote, Johannes rolls one truck, 150 cops, convoy, 150 pounds of freight in a five-ton truck. They had revealed the collusion between bosses, cops, and media. The second federal mediator also arrived on the 18th, Reverend Francis J. Haas. We'll talk more about him in the next episode. But here, he was set to meet with the strike committee. But before they could sit down and talk, the hospital convoy plot occurred. Demonstrating that the Citizens' Alliance was acting in bad faith, the strikers canceled their meeting with Haas. He instead visited Governor Olson, both of whom asked Johannes to not convoy any trucks for 48 hours, until at least Saturday, July 21st. Olson and Haas reported later that they had received a promise from Johannes, but Johannes had no memory of such an event. Instead, he said, quote, I agreed to take the matter up with the Employers' Advisory Committee. I met the entire committee at the Hotel Radisson. They turned down the truce proposal. They said they would not accept any truce, and at the same time requested me to furnish guards for the trucks." End quote. And Johannes did as he was told. In the morning, strike leaders had anticipated activity in the city market, informed by the General of the National Guard, E.A. Walsh. Harry DeBoer, the area picket captain, noticed cops milling around, but they didn't seem as if they were looking to make a scene. DeBoer said later that, quote, During the morning, a police captain approached me on the basis that it was bad for the town to have all these pickets on Washington Avenue, with tourists going through, etc. I agreed that if the police would leave, we would leave. One car of pickets and one squad car would remain, but no trucks were to move. But nothing happened. In the afternoon, though, cops and a couple trucks gathered at Slocum Bergeron, a wholesale grocery house near 3rd Street and 6th Avenue North. Strikers who had remained present called into headquarters, who dispatched as many as they had available, up to 5,000. All strikers remained unarmed. As Dobbs wrote, quote, We knew we couldn't challenge the riot guns, and it was our intention to conduct a peaceful mass protest against the anticipated strike-breaking move, end quote. The situation became tense. Fifty cops were on foot carrying riot guns, service revolvers, and clubs. Hundreds more cops arrived in cars, their ride guns sticking out of the car windows like quills on a porcupine. The scab truck had wire mesh covering the windows, and its license plates were removed. Strikers jeered as a few token cartons of groceries were loaded on the truck. This was not a serious delivery. Its purpose was to provoke. As the truck pulled out, a cruising picket with nine to ten strikers standing in its open bed rammed it, 
forcing the scabs to stop in their tracks. The cops opened fire without warning. They shot to kill. The pickets in the truck went down immediately. Some fell off while others crawled out. They shot point blank. One of the strikers in the truck, likely Henry Ness, had a pack of cigarettes in his shirt pocket shot into his lungs. But the cops fired at more than just the truck. They fired everywhere. From all quarters, strikers rushed toward the truck to help them, advancing into the gunfire with the courage of lions. Many were shot as they picked up their brothers. Bernard Kosky joined two others to pull a wounded man off the street when he himself was shot. He said, quote, I crawled under a car so I wouldn't get hit anymore, and I stayed there until after the shooting subsided. I got hit five times. Two went through me, and three are still in me. One went through my upper right arm. I got one in the left leg between my knee and left ankle, and that broke my leg there, the smaller bone, one in my hip that's still there. One went through my right leg, and one went into my right shoulder. It's been in there a long time. Buckshot. The one in my leg was from the side. That was after I fell down. The others were in the back. End quote. David Eugene Crocker had jumped off the truck, ordered to stand on the curb. Quote, then, without warning, one of the policemen took a long shotgun and shot me in the arm. End quote. After he started running with a few others, another policeman turned around and fired on the group, hitting Crocker in the arm with another slug. The cops went berserk. As Harry DeBoer described, quote, You see, there are at least 5,000 to 6,000 pickets there by the time they started shooting. You can visualize almost a whole block of strikers. So they shot at random, anywhere. Anywhere there was a worker moving, they shot. They just didn't shoot at the truck and then quit. They had kept on shooting until all the pickets had either hid or got shelter somewhere. Oh, they meant business, end quote. DeBoer was also convinced that police had stationed inside the second and third stories of the buildings surrounding the street, firing from above. The cops clubbed the wounded. Their aim was so wild that a sergeant got caught in the crossfire. Some workers engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat with cops to prevent them from firing, quite likely saving lives. But the police were simply far too organized for the strikers to respond in force. Both Bernard Kosky and Harry DeBoer, among others, crawled under cars after the cops shot them. This was not only to avoid further wounds, but also to avoid being picked up by ambulances and taken to the general hospital. The reason the Union had a hospital in the strike headquarters was that being bedridden made you a sitting duck for arrest. After the gunfire ended, then, they asked passersby to phone the headquarters to send trucks to help them back. The scene back at strike headquarters was hellish. In total, over 10 minutes, the Minneapolis Police Department shot 67 men, over 50 of whom were strikers and the rest bystanders. As I read from Marvel Shawl at the beginning of the episode, men were foaming at the mouth, others screaming. Their bodies were riddled with blue welts and bullet wounds. Henry Ness was delirious, fighting away the doctor who tried to help him until he collapsed. Those, like Ness, were most severely wounded, including John Ballor, Nels Nelson, Otto Lindahl, and Oli Shugren, were dispatched to area hospitals, among others. Dr. McCrimmon reported that he extracted 160 pieces of lead from the bodies of 34 men alone. Stryker's accounts were corroborated by a special investigation launched by the governor. Quote, Police took direct aim at the pickets and fired to kill. 
physical safety of police was at no time endangered. No weapons were in the possession of the pickets in the truck. At no time did pickets attack the police, and it was obvious that pickets came unprepared for such an attack. End quote. A waitress later reported to the Union, Bloody Mike, as he would now be known, after ordering the wanton murder of workers, had sat down and ordered soup, steak, potatoes, spinach, beans, salad, pie, cheese, coffee, and a big cigar, a meal fit for a pig. To honor the bravery and courage of the men who were shot by the police on Bloody Friday, I want to read from the organizer the list of names of the men who were shot. Victims of the Murderers The following 48 names constitute a partial list of the wounded workers who fell under the fusillade of Johannes's blue-coated assassins. Fred Nelson Frank Zanke J.R. Dean George Ross Oli Shugrin Jack McCoy Jack Lindahl Otto Lindahl, Simon Barak, Nels Nelson, Pat Hasty, Sam Sulis, Henry Lindbergh, Raymond Bloomquist, Victor Testuch, August Haas, Walter Carlson, Ed Kosky, Jack Novak, Harry McIlvain, Jack Severson, Donald Tutty, Walter Martin, Charles Collins, John Hoppus, Martin Hasey, John M. Dutcher, Alfred Listrom, S.G. Glaser, James Fahey, William Sarenpah, Harry Kruger, Ben Rubin, Frank Brose, Harry DeBoer, Norman Burnick, Godfrey Lundahl, Walter Wislock, Bernard Kosky, Henry Lindahl, Carl Johnson, August Sieber, H. Herbert, Theodore Stoppels, Eugene Crocker, and John Pierce. At the time, the organizer also listed those who were shot, but were being held in the custody of the police. They wrote, Many of them are in critical condition. One has had three blood transfusions, another is in dire need of an operation, but the cops thus far refused to release him for treatment. These included Richard Scammon, Jr., Arthur Mudge, Simon Barak, John Lindahl, Nels Nelson, Robert Chilters, Jack McCoy, Evans Robertson, Herbert Tosevold, John M. Dutcher, Victor Gastuck, Emmanuel Holstein, Frank Brose, Theodore Stoffels, and John Pierce. But last, as Marvel Shaw wrote, cops sent two of the men to oblivion, Henry B. Ness and John Ballore. Blood transfusions had failed to save them. John Bellore, an unmarried man among the unemployed who fought alongside Local 574, died on August 1st at the age of 49. Henry B. Ness was a veteran of World War I, a trade unionist and close friend of Bill Brown for 16 years, a husband and a father of four children. The Minneapolis Police Department shot 38 slugs into his body, including in the back while he is on the ground. Henry Ness died on Tuesday, July 23rd. His dying words echoed throughout Local 574 in the Minneapolis working class. Tell the boys not to fail me now. 
You have been listening to 1934 Mill City Revolt. Thank you for listening. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County, there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? He'll be with you fellow workers Until this battle's won Tell me which side are you Come in here to dwell Tell me which side are